Welcome to the PreparedX podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now, your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of the PreparedX podcast. I'm your host, Rob Burton. And just before we get started, I want to let you all know about uh, this episode, and it's brought to you by the International Crisis Management Conference, uh, ICMC. For those of you that uh, are not aware, the conference is coming up on June 7th and 8th in uh, beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. That's uh, 2022, June 7th and 8th, 2022. You can go to crisisconferences.com for more information. That's crisisconferences.com for more information. And we will provide some more details in the show notes of this recording. Well, today I'm joined by an old friend, uh, Dave Rogers. Uh, Dave and I go, uh, you know, way back now. I've been in the States for some 20 years, and I think I've known Dave pretty much uh, from the first year I landed here in the States. Uh, welcome, Dave. Rob, how you doing, buddy? I'm very well, thanks, Dave. Listen, before we get started uh, for the podcast today, uh, can you let our viewers know a little bit more about your career, please? Uh, well, it's been a bit of um, been a bit of a cornucopia of activity, I would say. Uh, coming out of uh, high school, I went to Tulane University, uh, where I majored in physics and drinking and partying. Um, so I did not finish there. However, I was in Navy ROTC. One thing led to another, and I became an enlisted man in the Navy. Um, you know, I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I was all about back then. However, I did know that I wanted to uh, become a SEAL. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went to, went to Bud's. I was in Bud's class 150 and uh, graduated there in 1988, went to SEAL Team 2. And I spent nine years total in the Navy, six years active at SEAL Team 2. Uh, came out of there, worked for the family business, which is mathematical in nature. And that's based in Middletown, Rhode Island, right near, right down the road from you. Yep, yep. And uh, Warren, Warren Rogers Associates and my father's uh, company. Um, so I did everything there from, you know, uh, digital modeling to uh, working with the computer programmers, some mathematical stuff to sales and, you know, did everything under the sun. Um, around that time, it's about what time when you and I met, um, I had decided I wanted to run for United States Congress. Um, our congressman at the time, Patrick Kennedy, uh, was somebody that I thought didn't really represent the first district of Rhode Island in the way that at least I felt um, perhaps it ought to be. Yep. And I mean, I could spend an hour on any one of these little inflection <laughs> points in my life and I'll, I'll just try and run through them quickly. However, I did run twice. I was the Republican nominee uh, twice in Rhode Island. And uh, that was very interesting experience there. Uh, after that, went to work for the governor of Rhode Island at the time, Don Cherry. I was director of constituent affairs. Um, had some personal issues in my life. Um, had a big uh, bout with uh, drinking. Uh, I am a recovering alcoholic. I'm coming up on 13 years sober now. Congratulations. And that really um, uh, reared its head at that time. And, and that was when I, I needed to get help. And thankfully I did. Uh, from that point forward, I, I, I kind of had to restart my life uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways would be the best way to put it. I had a series of sales jobs. I worked for, as a financial advisor for a while. And then in the last couple of years, um, I, well, and also I was a, uh, I ended up hosting a uh, daytime talk radio show in Rhode Island for six years. Um, in addition to having other jobs at the same time, that's not a very lucrative profession. However, it's one that I still to this day, probably the happiest I've ever been was doing that job. Um, it was just a very satisfying and fun thing to do. 
Uh, however, I decided a few years back, about three years now, to move up here to New Hampshire. And since that time, I've been doing a combination of military and political consulting for, you know, various ventures, everything from a, a private company, which serves primarily United States Air Force, um, a lot of mountain rescue type stuff up here where, you know, I work more on the behind the desk. Uh, my body mm -hmm. isn't what it used to be. Uh, <laughs> so I can't, I can't keep up with the young guys like I used to. Yeah. And, uh, but I can, I do understand that community. I understand that world. Um, so I can be helpful there, but also my political experience uh, has also been valuable to me. So I've been able to help out with uh, a lot of things there. So that kind of brings me very quickly up to the present day. Excellent. Well, uh, fascinating. And of course, um, I was, you know, part of uh, some of that journey. So I, I know you very well, and I appreciate you taking your time, uh, taking the time today out of uh, your busy schedule to to jump in here. I appreciate it too, Rob. I have a good yeah. time. Yeah, let's get going then. Let, let's talk a little bit about the most challenging role. I've been asking this question more recently um, of our, um, you, know, um, you know, guest speakers here uh, on the podcast. Um, as it relates to your career, what's the most challenging role you've had so far and why? You know, um, this is, uh, and, and you know, I, you had shared some of your ideas with me about what you wanted to do today in advance. So, um, and I remember this is right off the top. That's a hard question to answer. Um, however, you, you know, when, as I was talking there, I talked about the fact that, you know, I did spend time uh, as a Navy SEAL. And yet, even with that, um, I would say running for Congress really was. And, and I would say this is with the benefit of hindsight. Right. Uh, I'm older now. I'm 56 years old. I've got plan. You know, we're, we're all getting a little bit older. Yep. And, you get, and you do have those moments to look back and say, you know, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Who was I at that time? And I remember uh, this in the context of doing it wrong. And, and you saw a lot of the campaign, I think. And I think I did a lot of things fairly well. I wasn't a bad candidate. However, when you look back on it, and, and, and this could be, you know, I joke about this sometimes. I don't know whether I have char character flaws or character features, <laughs> um, but uh, I do tend to, you know, we do tend to remember the things that didn't go well much right. more poignantly than those that did. Yep. And, and the thing I remember about that is there's a, and I think a lot of people who get involved in politics run into this, but I also think it applies to people in leadership positions in general, is there's a, there's a temptation to be all things to all people. And in politics, particularly as a candidate, you definitely have that right. because it's, it's, a it's a popularity contest on a massive scale. Yeah. And you realize wherever you go, people are going to be judging you. They're going to be evaluating you. They're going to be seeing is this, and you want their vote, you want their support. And quite frankly, there's a, there's a little voice in our heads that tell us that are we legit? There's, a, there's an imposter sin, unless you're just a, almost a sociopathically arrogant person, which some of our politicians more than likely are. Right. But unless you're that, there is an imposter syndrome always. And you continually want to get, you need to get some sort of validation. Mm -hmm. So if you're walking into a room full of people who may disagree with you or may not like the way you go about something, or maybe you just don't seem legitimate to them, you're going to do what you feel, you, you're, there's going to be a temptation to do what you feel you need to do to fit in and fit their very aggregate, homogenized. Anytime you're dealing with a group of people, it's not as if they want one thing from you. They just want an image. <laughs> um, at least that's what's going on in your head. And you tend to, there's a temptation to conform to that. Yeah. And I can, the best example of this that I know from a third person uh, standpoint 
And it's a story that just, I, I, anybody I know, I, I do get approached by people who are gonna run for office. And anyone I know, uh, I, I talk about this a lot, is, you know, the why are you doing it? And, you know, yeah, you, you almost have to like cut 15 minutes right there. Of they're gonna, they're gonna about to say a bunch of crap. Right. Okay, because they're gonna say the answer they think you want to hear. Yeah, right. And it's like, no, no, no. Okay, listen, this is just you and me. I'm not recording it. Tell me for real. Right. Why do you want to do it? Okay, yeah. and if it's a lousy reason that tells me you're a lousy person, fine. It's good. <laughs> it's, at least it gives me somewhere honest to start from. After the 2000 election, 2000 presidential election. Okay, this is George Bush versus Al Gore down in Florida. The big recount yep. that we had down there. This is actually when I first got interested and getting involved in politics myself is just watching that entire thing play out. But that went on for weeks, if people don't remember. Right. And so you didn't know who the president was gonna be. And then finally it did sort of like everything played out and the yep. Florida Supreme Court ruled and then eventually the United States Supreme Court ruled um, that George Bush was going to be the next president of the United States. And Al Gore at that time finally gave his concession speech. Now, my father and I were watching this together. And at that time, my father was just an apolitical person. He just did not care about politics. He's a mathematician. You know, he's yep. a different way of thinking. However, Al Gore, if, if you have any memory of him as vice president or just his public persona for the previous eight years, very public profile, right? Mm -hmm. He was, the joke about him was he was an android. He was a, a robot. He, there really was no personality there. He's just so stiff all the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, being vice president, yes. I mean, that comes with the territory at least a little bit. However, Al Gore gives his concession speech. And at this point, in this moment, he's got nothing more to gain and nothing more to lose. He's becoming private citizen Al Gore again. And you can see it in his face and you could hear it in his words. And whether or not you agreed with him or what you thought about the guy, and depending on how political you might've been and what you might've thought about his positions, you, you, for the first time, after having known this man publicly right. through television for eight years, this is the first time I met the man. Huh. And my father and I are both watching it. And I look at my dad and I go, what do you think? And he goes, if this guy had run, he probably would have won. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was and I can remember that after I was finally finished, I, I ran in the 2002 and 2004 election cycles. And uh, Mark Patinkin from the Providence Journal gave me one of the greatest gifts that any politician can ever get. Any any losing politician can ever get when you lose an election, you know, particularly like, you know, I was a challenger candidate, a long shot. Um, right. Some guy who's running against the Kennedys in New England. I mean, how Don Quixote is that? <laughs> right. right? Yeah. On the face of it, it's just like, come on, dude. Right. But you know, that was where I was in my life. That's what I wanted to do. And I needed to prove it. Right. I needed, it was going to fail. It wasn't going to fail because I didn't try. Yep. And so I, I put my name on the ballot twice. I tried twice. But then when you're done, no one knows your name. No one cares who you are. You're just, and you feel it. You know it. Yeah. And, and, but Mark Patinkin, I remember it was the night that we had lost called me on my cell phone and, and he's a columnist with the Providence Journal, very popular one. And he said, listen, I want to come do an interview with you tomorrow morning. Now at that time I still drank and you were probably there that night. Right? Yes, I was there. Yep, yep. And, and, you know, of course we're just getting soused. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, nobody is thinking about like tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> moderation was not a word okay, right. that, yeah. that was being said, said that night. And I literally told him, I said, listen, Mark, man, you know, this can be a long night for us. And <laughs> you wanted to get, you wanted to come down to Newport and interview me at like eight o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, come on, dude. 
And he's like, listen, if I don't do this, you know, if I like, I've got this now, if yeah. we wait at all, it's not happening. Right. I'm like, okay. So I got myself out of bed, went down, I met him in the hotel bar. We're all at the hotel downtown Newport. Yep. And, and he, and he just interviewed me about the whole process and then wrote a story. And I remember in that interview sitting with him, it was just me now. It didn't right. matter what anybody thought anymore. And I gave him like, okay, this is really what I think. Right. And, and it wasn't like some sort of like, I didn't change my position or have some great reveal, right. but I dropped the facade. Yeah. I dropped yeah. the persona and I stopped trying to be a candidate and just was a man. And that to me was something that I'm not going to run for anything again. I, I, that's just not happening in my life. However, right. it is something that has come up again and again in how the, it was something a football coach said to me when I was in high school, to thine own self be true. You know, it's just be true to yourself, yep. be who you are, and don't worry so much about what people think of it. Yep. And it's, it's incredibly liberating. And also, you tend to be a lot more successful. People want genuine. People are attracted to genuine. You, the thing that you think you're doing, which you might be taking a risk and you might be repelling those who you wish to attract, is going to have per perhaps precisely the opposite effect. Well, you know, that, that's amazing. And, th and thanks for sharing that. I, you know, I, I can equate that to the world that we're in here, you know, the crisis management world, whether it's a corporation or government agency, nonprofit. Uh, and, and on those teams, we want to make sure that we, you know, we know each other, right? It's, it's about the characters. It's about the human nature, because if we're going to work through a stressful situation together, you know, we need to drop all those, um, you know, barriers, if you will. So that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. No, it's, a, it's one that I come back to a lot just mentally. Oh. Yeah. All right. M moving on then, uh, in terms of leadership, um, I'm sure there are many traits um, that good leaders should have um, in, in order to be prepared for stressful situations. But, uh, you know, what would be your um, traits of a good leader in order for them to prepare for such situations? When, when I saw this question, um, my knee jerk uh, reaction was calm. Mm -hmm. Stay calm. And then I thought about that, like, okay, well, where does that come from? You know, what, what is that? And, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I had a lot of thoughts about uh, compartmentalization of thought and, you know, how much of that was drilled into me in the military or perhaps, you know, genetically how predisposed I was to that or whatever. I don't know. Right. Um, but really calm comes from preparation. There more than anything yeah. else. It does come from preparation. Yep. And, and it, this kid, this just came up actually yesterday in a conversation about this other venture I'm getting involved in right now. I was talking with a, um, a venture capital guy and, and we were going through um, an idea and everything. And it's, it's just an embryonic thing. Um, but it was interesting. I, I, I made kind of an admission to him. I said, listen, I'm not an entrepreneur. Okay, I don't have an entrepreneurial mind because I know what kind of mind I have now. After half a century here on this earth, I've learned <laughs> a little bit about me. Right. And what I have is the opposite of that. Now, an entrepreneur is someone who basically sits around and says, what can go right? Okay. The person who thought up Uber, okay, was, I mean, when I, because I remember you and I both live, I used to live and you live now, Newport, Rhode Island. Yep. Okay. In Newport, and this is going to be a weird story, I know, but it'll it'll circle back. One problem that was evident to me in the 1990s and early 2000s in Newport was we had a big problem with public transportation, yeah, yeah. Um, specifically taxi cabs, because Newport in the summertime has got 75,000 people in it in any given day, and in the wintertime it's 19. 
Okay, so you have a, but if you're going to have a taxi cab company, um, that's a lot of overhead. That, yeah. So you're going to have as many cabs it is to serve the smallest of those two numbers. Because why would you have all the rest of those cabs just sitting around in the summertime? All these people are going out to bars, going out to restaurants, they're staying out late at night. They all, and we know we've got this sort of Puritan thing in Newport where one o'clock means one o'clock. Yep. You know, places close, go home. We don't right. want you anymore. And everyone's trying to get somewhere and nobody can. There's not enough cabs. So I'm sitting around thinking about that all the time going, man, we, there's got to be a way to like work with like someone who's got the exact opposite seasonal schedule and move the cabs. I, I was thinking about that. I was never, never going to do anything about it. Right. I was thinking, somebody comes up with Uber. Okay. And I remember at the time thinking when that first started, gosh, how are you going to get insurance? How are you going to get licensing? I don't know if this is going to work. I mean, right. the reliability of the drivers. I mean, I just, all I saw were the problems. Yep. I saw every worst case scenario. Yep. Okay? And that's how I think of things. That's how I look at the world is always what can go wrong. It's the opposite of the way that a business leader typically is going to think. They're thinking about what can go right. Right. Yeah. And that's how they got in this position in the first place. Yep. Now, I'm not the person who's going to come up with a great idea. I'm the guy you want sitting next to him. Okay. Yep. Like I'm going to sit there and go, okay, here's where we might get in trouble. And we'll always be at odds with one another. And the way that you, but th this is where calm though comes from, because if you were, if you're already in a place where you're not entrepreneurial, okay, you're, you're heading some organization, you're in part of a large enterprise, or, or you're, you're managing a large facility, whatever it is, okay, you're not trying to invent a new way to, to make a scrambled egg anymore, okay, you're trying to manage something that is an ongoing concern. And if you just, if you can take the time to sit and think, what can go wrong here? Okay, what, what about like, if, if suddenly we had a natural disaster, and you know, what would we do and say, okay, well, we would do this. We would call this person. We would get on this. We'd do this zoom call. Like, oh yeah, by the way, no internet. Yeah. Okay. Like think about Tonga right now. Yeah. Okay? Yep. They have no internet. They have nobody, nobody can get there. They just did start getting the Australian Navy and the, and the British Navy, I think just started getting there. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, think about those sorts of things. Think about whatever it is that is your lifeline and take it away. And, and the way that I would relate this to my own personal experience um, is just the way that we trained when I was right. in the SEAL teams. Yeah. We, and this is the 1980s and 90s, okay? So we had access to the best equipment, the best tech at that time. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't even, it's night and day from what they're <laughs> right. doing with right now. It's, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, RoboCop out there now. But um, the, we had access to all the best. We, we, had, we had satellite communications anytime we needed it, okay? Now, that was kind of a big deal back then is to have actual satellite communications. It was a big heavy radio called the PSC-3, thing weighed like 35 pounds. I was a radio man, so I had to carry the thing. Yep. And you had antenna for it and you had all this. But when we went out and we trained, we almost never used it. We, we would use it to simulate the weight. Because <laughs> right. it's not, you turn it on, you put in your crypto and you're talking. It's, it's yep. no big deal. The way we did communication, and I'm doing operations in Scotland and Norway is typically where I did a lot of work. Uh, we're talking to Virginia Beach to get all of our, like, they, they've got their, our training plan over there. And if we want to like say, okay, we've gotten near the target area. Can we go into the target area? We're simulating talking to national command authority to say, okay, we're about to go do the thing. Um, do we have authorization? Yeah. And we need to have that communication made. In a real world scenario, you're definitely going to be on SATCOM for that. You're not going to take a chance. However, we're doing HF communicate, high frequency communications. And just briefly, without going into all the detail, what this entailed is I, it was a different radio. 
I would take out a canteen, okay, one of my canteens full of water, and I would tie some, some a string to it, basically. And then on, there's, there's a right technique to do this. I would like twirl it around like David versus Goliath, like a bolo, and I would throw it up into a tree and wrap, and it would wrap over a branch. And when I say <laughs> do it that way, I really do mean that's the best way to do it. Right. Train at how to throw the canteen. Okay. Then you pull that down, then you tie it to an antenna, which is just a long wire. Yeah. Okay. Talking a hundred feet of wire and you, and you run that wire up in a tree and then you would figure out what direction that wire needs to be facing. It needs to be eight to 10 degrees off from where you want to make your shot because it's a conical signal and you've learned all this stuff, but this is stuff that's going to work no matter what. Okay. When everything goes down, you've got something that is essentially Vietnam era or even world war II era. Right. And this theory of using the, the gear that will not ever fail, okay? Knowing how to make a fire with two sticks, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, um, is how we trained at everything. And it does apply. I mean, it's kind of a neat story, like, you know, I'm throwing canteens and trees and everything. But really, it <laughs> does apply to anything, is look around at what it is that you depend upon on a daily basis. What is, what's your umbilical? Yeah. Now, cut, cut the umbilical. Can you stay in operation? Can you stay profitable? Have, and, and the way to do this is to think it through and run it through. And you can sit quietly in a room and think of all this, but the best way to do it is to actually prepare, have yeah. scenarios, run through it. And, and the other half of that too is we tend to look for our leaders to be the people who are going to be doing all the things that I just said. If you're in a leadership position, you've got the burden of accountability. You've got the burden of responsibility, okay? You have to think about the entire enterprise all the time. And you also are the person who maybe it's a guy like me, you know, worst case scenario, <laughs> yeah. or, or maybe, you know, those are the people who are at the most senior level. There are going to be a lot of people at the middle and junior levels who don't have that burden, yet do have young, um, agile, creative minds. And they will think of something that you haven't thought of. Yes. Yep. You need to be ready to listen to them. Yeah. Okay. And that is not something that you just do on the day. No, but you that's need right. To have created an environment whereby, and it's a cliche, but there are no stupid questions. There are right. no stupid ideas. Yeah. Let people know that taking risks with their thoughts is a welcome thing. You're not going to act on all of them. Yep. You're gonna, and you might end up having a laugh sometimes. But it's creating an environment where everybody's ready to speak up. And, and but by the time we're done here, I'm going to come back to that one because it ended up being critical in a combat situation I was in. Yeah, no, you know, it's, it's, you know valid for, for the listeners here as well, Dave, because, uh, you know, we we often introduce uh, a process called horizon scanning. So, you know, and that's done again at, before the crisis, right before the incident unfolds. Um, and what we what we you know teach is you know bring those cross-functional leaders in but have them talk to their teams about what uh, they're seeing you know in the trenches so to speak so in the warehouse on on the you know on the front line and uh, you know get that feedback because um, from a management perspective you know you work in these silos and uh, quite often you don't see that so uh, that's such a valid point that you bring up in terms of um, including as many people as you possibly can uh, from your team and and those uh, you know, those ideas Ideas coming from all areas of the organization again whether you're a private corporation you know publicly traded whatever it may be you know government entity it's uh, it's uh, so important to include everyone 
And, and, and just to expand on that thought a little bit too, there, there's another element too, because somebody out there is going to listen to this has done this. Okay. They've been there. They do have that kind of environment. And one of the problems that they ran into was overload. Okay. Everyone is just shouting out every silly thing that they can think of. And, and yes, personalities do come into play and people are trying to make a name for themselves sometimes. And, and that, Hey, listen, that's fine. It's human. You expect it. You want it. Okay. Small price to pay. Yep. However, so you need to be able to triage. Okay, what ideas are we hearing everything and are these things moving effectively through the chain? If you've got 80 voices, the person who's ultimately making the decision isn't in the room with 80 people. He's in the room with four. Okay, how do you make sure that those 80 got their information to the four in an efficient way where you give proper credence to all of the ideas and, and that you've and you've been able to assess them so you can get something succinct um, up the chain. That again needs to be practiced. You can't just hope for it on the day. You need to be able to do that, you know, find out where the, the links in the chain fail, find mm -hmm. out where the choke points are, those sorts of things. Triage is important just as well. So it's kind of, a, there's a give take there. Yeah, yeah. I uh, appreciate that. So for our listeners then, in, in terms of your daily routine, what do you do to help uh, remain, you know, focused and calm? Of course, you know, uh, we, we touched on, you touched on the calm part before, but uh, are there any things that you do you know, on a daily basis to help you uh, with the focus piece? Oh, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have apps for, How excited am I going to get? <laughs> we, we ha, well, you know, in terms of remaining focused, I have an app for that. So it reminds me of things. And so, <laughs> <laughs> No, I would say um, exercise is big for me. It really yeah, is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've uh, obviously I had a physical job um, when I was in my uh, 20s. And I've tried my best to maintain that over the years. And for various reasons, vanity, or I just was used to it. Um, personal achievement, but as I, I, this is kind of a truer thing. As I've gotten older, um, it's become much more important. Uh, in that, I need to. It, it's I, it, there's almost there is a chemical thing that goes on here, and and my all people, my my older sister uh, who's a bodybuilder, yeah, uh, she talks to me a lot about it. And it, as as we get older, I think it actually matters more. Um, it does sort of you know bring a calmness to the day. Um, if I know, first of all, it's part of a routine and I don't like to have my routine broken. Um, but also it just, it does at the end of a day, knowing, okay, I went and I achieved that today. It was personal and it was for me. Yeah. And there's also something that happens in physiology. People know all the words for all of these things. All I know is that there is something chemical that goes on there and, and, and I, and it's, it's beneficial, but also as I've gotten older, the one thing I realize and I think like a lot of people out there over the holidays, I, I took a few weeks where I just didn't do anything. Right. And boy, did I pay for that. Um, you lose it fast. You, your, your body needs to be, you know, you, you need to be able to maintain your energy level. And a lot of that just has to do with, you know, physical fitness, which is a broader and broader term. I think as we do uh, get a little bit older, just do something, but do it every day. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. Whatever it is, yeah. do something. And I mean, I swim a lot now. I still go to the gym. Those are kind of my two big things. And I've got mountains outside my door here that I can go walk up every now and then. Um, so, so that's mine. And it's a great way to clear your head too, is to just get you to a mental space where, you know, I, I, I'm adamant that the only reason I have my phone with me is because I use it for a timer sometimes on some of my exercises. But if I'm in the gym, you're probably not getting a hold of me. Right. Uh, yeah. Because I'm, I'm in there to do, do something else. The other thing too um, is, and I don't know, to a lot of my friends, it seems like no big deal, but I know a lot of people who are uh, highly successful, highly motivated people 
um, do have a bit of an issue with this is that you got to get some sort of mental stimulation that has yeah. nothing to do with anything else. Yep. And it could be binge watching Ted Lasso. It could be reading something. But if you're going to be reading, I really recommend, you know, find something that is nothing to do with what you're doing. Um, I do believe there's great value if, you know, you're in working at a high level of financial institution to read about, you know, the history of Rome or some science fiction. Right. Anything that yeah. brings your brain in different a different place. Direction. Yeah. 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 We do get well-worn paths in our thinking yeah. and anything you do to break out of that, it just kind of loosens up to extend the analogy a little bit. It, uh, yeah. it, it keeps the dirt fresh. Yeah, you know, I, I'll take that advice on because I, I'm I'm guilty of, you know, running a small business. But, you know, you know, my my reading, you know, calendar is often made up of business like reading. So, sure. you know, uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I need to you know do more in that area. So that's a great piece of advice that we'll take on board. It, it helps us maintain our dynamic thinking. Um, and one thing just to, I'll put in a um, one that I've just started doing lately is my son got me back into it uh, as a New York Times crossword puzzle. Yeah, um, I do it every day now. And I, I used to do it for years ago. And I know it sounds like, you know, that's kind of a but you know what? It's perfect. It's 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 a little game to play that takes you a little bit of time. It's on it. They've got an app for it now. So it's really easy. You don't have to go buy the paper. Right. Uh, for, and it's free. Um, but I do that every day now. And, and I find it's terrific for that. Just nice. to somewhere else. Nice. Um, you mentioned physical activity there. Um, it's really important uh, for decision making. What's your kind of you know approach to that in terms of um, you know making sure that uh, you know you, you're staying fit and active, um, and that really helps with decision making. Is that what you find? You know, this this is actually a deceptively difficult question because who of us can be objective about ourselves? Right. Mm -hmm. I know me and I know what I do and I am the person that I am. And so those are all those things just kind of fit together. Um, I exercise a lot. And my decision making is, you know, mine. I don't know if it's good, if it's bad. Right. No right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, look at the scoreboard and it'll tell you whether or not it's great. Right. Um, the uh, what I will say that it does give you, though, um, is, is a little bit of and this sounds like something that many people might not think, or, or I don't know, I, I shouldn't be too presumptuous here. So it's self-confidence. And, and there, there's something there, again, this is happening at some basic chemical level, but when you are moving in a direct, I, 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 I no longer look in the mirror to see how I'm doing, right? I, I, I don't look at how much I lift or how fast, well, I do look at how fast I swim. Um, it's ain't, it ain't that fast, right? <laughs> um, but, I, but I do kind of monitor that. All I need to know, I don't need to know where I am. That's an irrelevant piece of information uh, as far as physical work is concerned. What I want to know is what direction am I headed? And if you did something, you're headed in the right direction. And that's right. really all you need to know. And, and to me, something does come from that, that it does give you a, a, a small amount of just confidence in yourself. No matter what, you have a goal every day, every single day that you can successfully accomplish. And that means something. There's a famous um, speech that uh, Admiral McRaven gave down at the comm commencement for the University of Texas. It's in inside the SEAL teams. I can tell you that we laugh about this a little bit. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen it and I've get, kind of giggled as well, but, but it does make but sense. I know it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, he makes a good point. Yes, right now, if yeah. you were to go into my bedroom, my bed <laughs> is made and I do make it every morning and I always have. Yeah. Um, that, but, there, but the point he's trying to make there is start the day by an accomplishment. And that's right. an accomplishment. 
And to me, I look at physical activity, physical fitness being the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, it's something you can accomplish every day. And it does translate in a tertiary subterranean way over to the way we conduct ourselves. And that can end up having an effect on highly stressful situations where your body is not going to become yet another challenge for you when the right. outward stimuli that are making things challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So I, I know uh, some of our listeners will be, uh, you know, really um, looking forward to this question as it relates to uh, hell week. Um, you know, and uh, you know, the question we're posing here is, you know, of course you learned a lot from hell week, but um, you know um, there, there are, you know, obviously, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, you explain what hell week is for those who don't, don't know what that might be um, or what that is. Um, and what did you really take away? What would, what would be the, you know, one or two main takeaways that you had from that week? Well, uh, what I'll make reference to is what was the case in 1988 when I went through it. Um, it's changed a little bit in terms of timing and everything, but Hell Week is a part of basic underwater demolition SEAL training, BUDS, which is the training that you go through to become a SEAL. The training itself is six months long. Uh, it's divided into three phases. Uh, first phase is what they call basic conditioning, and then you've got a dive phase and you've got a land warfare phase. And then you graduate from that, you go to a team, and then eventually you become a SEAL. Um, so there's a, it's a long process. Uh, first phase, basic conditioning. Basically, you're just getting your ass kicked mm -hmm. for, for eight weeks. That's a, they call it basic conditioning. You're not in better shape uh, when, you, when you get done with that. You, you can do more. You can do a lot more. Uh, your brain will have learned to accept that you can do more. And you, and you sort of get very good at the things that they ask you to do. But really what they're trying to determine is how bad do you want to be here? Are you here for the right reasons? And hell week is when you really figure that out. Um, when I did it, it was a sixth week of training. It is five days and nights. Um, you start off in our case on a Sunday night and you do not sleep until you're done. Now as an asterisk next to that, you do sleep for anywhere from two to four hours on the fourth day, because medically you're hitting the hundred hour mark. Um, medically it becomes something that's very detrimental. If you don't at least shut your eyes. Right. Um, I, can, I can tell you having done it <laughs> that I think I would have rather stayed up because if they let you sleep for, in our case, it was three hours that night. And then suddenly they're waking you up again after you've been awake for a hundred. Um, that's hell. Yep. That's, that's really real. I remember I was, um, the first thing you had to do was go jump in the ocean. Um, and the ocean in Southern California is about 49. Well, at our time we did, it was December when we did it, it was oh. 49 degrees. So the first thing you're doing after you've been, you know, they get you right out of bed, fully closed, go jump in. I was me and my buddy Bruce, uh, Bruce, I'm not gonna use anybody's full name, but my buddy Bruce and I were running down there and we're both crying our eyes out. We're crying and uncontrolled, just right. uncontrolled, we're sobbing, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just blubbering. And it's like, oh my God. But at this point, you know you're gonna make it, right? Because something happens when you make it to the halfway point. Uh, you know, you're, and that's, you know, it's a different lesson, probably for a different story. But once you make it halfway through anything, you can make it all the way through. Yeah. Um, but, uh, hell week is it, it's constant it's very it's basically the cold is the thing that is the great equalizer um this training takes place in southern california in coronado california right on like you know we're talking a few miles from mexico here and people would think well gosh you know it's got to be awfully warm down there it's gotta be nice it's california it's like <laughs> no um that water is cold 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 and you will be wet all the time and you will be sandy from head to toe mm -hmm. all the time. and it will just break you down um and there was a guy 
and and this is kind of like and I wrote about this. I think you've probably seen the story, Rob. Um, I I there's a I wrote a whole thing about this one particular experience between me and this other fella. But I'm just going to give you the most abridged version I can right now. Um, but uh, he was I, I, my nickname for him was Magua, and uh, the reason I called him that was because he looked to me and and also had the persona of the character Magua in Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. In other words, just a badass. I mean, <laughs> everything about this guy was chiseled and hardcore and just everything that I wasn't. Okay. I'm like, I've got this sort of Charlie Brown kind of a little bit chubby, you know, kind of happy guy. And, you know, I just don't, I mean, I'm like cartoonish compared to this dude. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember I, I, I knew of him before I ever got to buds, we were in the same a school and the same like trade school in the Navy. And, you know, there's like, maybe 30, 40, 50 guys who are continuing. There's, there's thousands of people at these schools. And of those, there's a small coterie of people that continually show up at the gym, continually show up at the pool. Nobody's making it, you know, it's all voluntary and continually out running around the base. And you know, and you eventually get to meet all these guys. These are guys who want to be SEALs as well because why else would you be doing all this stuff? Right. And, and this is the one guy who just stood out, okay? He was like way stronger, way faster, way better swimmer just had it together and through a whole a series of you know things that happen about a year later about nine months later we end up in the same buds class okay <laughs> he's actually my boat crew coxswain he's the leader of my group of seven guys within sort of the administrative subunit uh in hell we class as the boat crew and the seven of us and he's my leader and i remember but the night before hell week he gave us everybody else in the book who's big speech about how you know listen guys i got room on my back for all of you you know and and and, and i was just you know i it was very like impassioned and you know they think that you know they all the instructors tell us that everyone here is going to think about quitting you know well they you know and i'll leave out the expletives but um they go they don't know anything about me and da, 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 da. <laughs> if you guys even think about quitting you come to me first We'll get, through, we'll get through this together. And I'm, and I remember that moment. Cause like, this is less than 24 hours before the start of hell week. I, I remember thinking, wow, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Cause I like, this guy had been like an, an image for me. Right. Like I right. didn't know him, but I yep. knew of him. And now he's saying like, basically saying, Dave, I'm going to carry you through this. And I'm like, yeah, hell yes. Thank you. <laughs> we get into like, we're 18 hours into hell week. Our hell week had the distinction of being the coldest one. I think to this day, uh, it was the coldest one on record. It was just a weird winter cold snap came through Southern California. It actually snowed in Los Angeles when, when this was going on. And uh, so we're down there running, you know, jumping in the ocean and it's like 30 degrees outside, which is deadly when you're dripping wet all the time. And 18 hours in, I'm sitting there, we're, we're having our first full meal outside and the muscles in my back are cramping up, which is weird. You know, I can't get my hands together in front of me. I'm like a T-Rex. I'm trying to feed myself like the, like the, the food in the pouch in one hand and the spoon in the other. And I'm like dropping it out of my mouth onto my face. Cause I, I can't get everything to work. Dave, you dropped, uh, you've dropped off there. the way it should. My, my, my finger shivering uncontrollably is what had gotten me to that point solution, which is the worst possible thing. And, and, and the thing about Bud's training, the thing about Hell Week in particular, is the instructors during this time, we had an hour to sit out there for lunch and they're not doing anything with us. We're just yeah. sitting, we got time, loads of it. And it's very much on purpose because it's when you have time 
is when you're going to start having the poisonous thoughts. Yeah. It's just all you got to do is leave someone to their own devices. There's something I wrote in that story. And, and it's very true. And it applies to, I swear, all of life. Yeah. The, the anticipation of misery and pain is a far, far more powerful thing than misery and pain themselves. In other words, the worst enemy you've got lives in your brain. Mm-hmm. And, if Bud's, and in Bud's training, we know that. Yeah. Okay. So like, I don't have to get to you. You're going to get to you for me. All I got to do is tell you what's coming. I'm going to take you out of the present moment that you're in and whatever it is you're dealing with. And I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff, a bunch of boogeymen that are over the horizon. They're around the corner. They're waiting for you in the dark. And I'm going to scare the hell out of you with those. And that's what's going to beat you. And that's what they're doing. And I remember at that point I got up and I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I can make it through log. I couldn't get my hands above my head. Right. And you're supposed to be like picking these logs up above your head for log PT. And I'm going, I just don't know if I've got this right now. Yeah. Right. So I walked over to that guy, Mago. And I'm like, hey, man, I don't know. I don't know if I've got, I don't know if I can make it through this next one. I could really use some help. And, and he's not talking, he's not saying anything. Right. And I, and I did, all I could feel was like his disapproval washing over me, like you weakling. Why are you saying all this stuff to me? And uh, I finally locked eyes with him. And his eyes were just like vacuous. There's no one there at all. Yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, man, me too. And he turned around <laughs> and he rang the bell right in front of me. Oh, he did? We oh. On, in that, we quit on the spot. Oh. I'm like, and I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I beat him. I beat him. And the rest of it is plain sailing. That was probably a way. Well, of- I mean, I had, I had externalized what was going to keep me safe, yeah. right? This other guy who I, had, I also idealized. And what I realized at that moment was like, he isn't going to do it. I'm going to do it. And matter of fact, I'm better suited for this than he is. Yeah. And I always was. Good. And I would say that, that, so those are the things that really come out of that is you don't know who your top performers are and you don't know who, what kind of performer really lives in you. Right. And it is when you're in that stressful situation. It is when that situation calls for calm. It is when the preparation comes into play. This is when you're going to learn. This is when you're yep. going to find out. And this is when, as a leader, you got to have your eyes open and look around you and see who else is there with you. And if they're not, help them. Bring yep. them along and make sure, and you know, just like, listen, we've got this. We're going to be okay. That and the other one is where the demons live. They live inside of us. They live in our head and they all are named anticipation. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I remember interrogation training and I just remember that it was exactly that it was the time that was going to kill us. Um, and, um, you know, all the, all the stuff that they threw at you, all the situations they threw out of you, but uh, they left you for long periods of time blindfolded with white noise playing or whatever the situation may have been. And it was just like the top, the clock was ticking. And it was those, those thoughts that you had about ringing the bell and in our case, a, d- a different uh, exit, but, um, yeah, it's, same situation uh, time uh, yeah time uh, is uh, lit- literally against you so listen I want to move on I know we've got about 15 minutes left here I want to be mindful of uh, of your time um, you recently participated in your son's uh, curriculum at the school of man in Arkansas can you tell us a little bit about that and what your involvement was yeah and, I, and I'm basically just giving them a shameless plug here um, not because I get anything out of it but because I really am impressed um, my son Patrick um, is uh, doing well. He's uh, working for uh, Haibu, uh, which is an online marketing company, doing very well there. And uh, he's a, he coaches high school lacrosse. And, and he, he came across this thing called School of Man down there in Arkansas. And, and what it is, and, and there's a lot of these types of things out there, 
uh, where, you know, you get a bunch of guys together. It's a male uh, situation, you know, all guys. And um, they're just trying to sort of, you know, it's a, it's a workout program, but it's sort of a fellowship program. And, and, and the more Patrick told me about it, the more culty, quite frankly, it sounded to me. I was like, this sounds a little bit weird. And mm-hmm. I'm going to have to check this out for myself. And, and particularly uh, due to the fact that it apparently was based on a lot of SEAL team uh, ideas and, and uh, you know, our philosophies. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> now I really want to check it out. Like, you know, you know what, what kind of, what kind of tail are they spinning down in this place? Um, and uh, so I, but I did, I went down, I met the guys who were in charge of it. I did a few workouts with them and, and I really was impressed um, with what they're doing. Um, and then they brought me down. Um, well, Patrick invited me down. Uh, he went through a thing, which is kind of like their version of hell week called the crucible, which is a 55 hour um, thing, you know, again, straight through the night. Mm-hmm. Um, where you, where it's, it's similar to hell week and, and by like you know i was like i had the unique distinction uh because i was the father of one of the participants and i had been a seal and i'd gotten to know everybody yeah. um i was i was the first outsider quote unquote yeah that they allowed to sort of attend the whole thing so i for those 55 hours i was up for 48 of them yeah and um because i just couldn't you know it just i loved it it was great it like brought me right back but yeah. by about the midway through i was actually uh doing some of the uh cadre some of the instructing myself nice. um they actually brought bring in seals to do it and uh, guys who I, I didn't know them personally in the teams are a bit younger than me um but we knew a lot of the same people and we just you know you know how it is you know yep. you meet guys from there and it's like you know within 10 minutes your brothers yeah, yeah yeah um but no i really was impressed with the way they do it they really stress personal accountability in a way that is it, it's hard to describe and, and really all I want to do is just sort of give it a plug, Rob, mm-hmm. but um, it is something I know they're trying to expand nationally. Uh, right now, it's almost solely based in Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. Um, however, they're, they're figuring out, you know, how do we grow their message? And to me, it is something that people should take a look at. Um, the personal growth that they're looking at there for their guys really is, you know, at a very deep level is what kind of lies do we tell ourselves? And, and you know, Sometimes like in doing a, an interview like this, or, and I'm just recalling like other times when I've done something like this. One of the things I try and get across to people, a message I really would like to, to, to hit home is sometimes you say, Hey, Navy SEAL and ran for Congress and wow, gosh, you know, sounds like this guy's got it all together. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, I don't. Okay. I really, don't. <laughs> right. Right. And, and one of the things that I've learned is that it never really ends growing as a human being, as a man, as a person, as a member of society, as a partner to people, as a father, as a brother, um, it is continual. It is something that you need to like continually work on and continually try to find out, you know, who are we really to ourselves? What lies do we tell ourselves? What, what, what is our internal narrative and, and, and how is it affecting us? And it, it demands examination it'd be the way that i would put it um no matter every time you think you know quote unquote you've arrived now you really haven't right okay yeah. no, it's you're going to the and i know this sounds kind of new agey and 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 i'm full of pronouns right now and i'm not giving you too much to really sink your teeth in. <laughs> but, but i'm just saying like i these guys did seem to have a way of uh helping mm. guys to really come to terms with that stuff and they're not and it's not nice you know yep. it's, it's it's a little bit in your face Yep. And that was the one thing too, that I was like, well, what are they going to tell me? Yep. Okay. I've been there and I've done that. 
and and yeah, there, you've got it too, Rob. I know you do. Where internally, there's a certain like place where it's like, listen, I don't, you know, I'm a wonderfully nice guy, and 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 I do just like you do care about, you know, I am who I am. What I did today, okay, that stuff I did in my past is in my past. However, I know that that's part of who I am, though. And eventually, if you want to try to quote unquote get to me, well, you're never going to get there, okay. Right. You, you didn't do that. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, okay, well, what kind of, what kind of lie is that telling you about you? You know, how do, how much does that really matter? And what, do you, and are you really benefiting from it? And are you, are you sharing it? Right. You know, are you, are you benefiting others from that yeah. rather than just being proud of yourself? Yeah. And, and there's a lot there that, that I was just really, really impressed by the way they go about it. And, and that's really kind of all I wanted to say on it because I'm probably doing a, a hackneyed job of, of giving the course a description, but it's worth looking up. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll add that to the show notes. So we appreciate that. So great. All right. So as we start to wrap up here, um, of course, everything we do here at PreparedX is all about preparation. As you know, we're, we're simulation exercises. We help our you know customers run uh, exercises to validate their plans and capabilities. Um, what would you recommend to leaders as the most important element of preparing them to lead during a crisis? Great way well, to end. Yeah, and, and we've already touched on a couple of them. And I want to come back to one in particular. Um, and, and this is the listen to everyone. Okay, if, you, if you're if particularly, there's, and I'm going to, I'm working my way towards a story here to wrap it up. Um, and it's something happened to me the first time I was ever in combat, the first time I ever had a bullet fired at me. Um, and uh, what I'll do is I'm going to tell the story. And then I'm going to come back to the why of it. But I was involved in the invasion of Panama, 1989. And we, um, the, the famous things about uh, the SEAL team involvement in the invasion of Panama are obviously what happened at Batia Airfield, where we lost uh, John Connors, Ike Rodriguez, Don McFall, and Chris Tillman um, all lost their lives. And um, also the dive operation, which happened in support of that. Well, my platoon did the dive operation, but there, it was only four guys who did that. And I was my buddy and, and Ted Moreland, uh, God rest his soul, uh, we were the, the third dive pair. We were divers five and six and only one through four ended up going on that job. So we got cut loose and they sent us over to Cologne, Panama. And the first full day of the invasion, so this is after the night of the invasion, uh, we're out patrolling Cologne Harbor in a mic boat. And a mic boat is exactly like a landing, a World War II landing craft. Okay, there's really no difference. Just, right. a, yeah. just they made it more recently. Okay, it's the only difference, but that's exactly if you saw Saving Private Ryan again. If it is, if it's not broken, don't you know? Don't fix it, right? Well, it's a perfectly useful platform, right? And it's what was available. So they stuck about, they stuck eight of us in it with the with the driver, and we're out there tooling around Cologne Harbor. Um, you had to, and Cologne is at one end of the Panama Canal. Panama City is on the other. Um, and we're, you know, there's a lot of traffic. That's you know, they've just halted everything, and you just got to make sure everything's stable out there. Well, we get a message uh, late in the morning that a container ship tied up in Cologne Harbor on, on a pier uh, is about to get underway. Now, everything has been frozen, so nobody's allowed to get underway. This is a container ship. And apparently, <clears throat> there's a Panamanian Defense Force major on board this thing, a uh, senior guy. He is wanted. Um, this is somebody that we've, uh, we've identified as somebody that we need to take into custody. He's on board this thing, and they're going to try and make a run for it in a container ship. They want us to go stop it. Okay, so now just visualize with me here, please. Landing craft from Saving Private Ryan. Okay, if you are in a medium-sized room right now, that is how big that thing is, okay? It is a, we're talking maybe 40 feet long. 
a container ship is massive. <laughs> it is when you're when you're at water level, which we were. Um, that thing is about ten stories in the air. Uh, it is just this huge, huge, huge thing, and we come puttering up to the stern of it, and sure enough, you can see that the the, the ship's uh, power plant is going, and we're looking at them, going. They haven't told us how. They haven't told us, you know, go get this major or how you're going to stop this ship. They just said do it, and like we're so we're sitting there, and, and most of us are young, and also one of the little asterisks to this: the eight of us are together. It was four guys from my platoon and from SEAL Team Two. And there were four guys who also got left over from a SEAL Team 4 platoon that wasn't engaged. So you got eight guys there who've known each other for 24 hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, half of us have just met the other half. Yeah. Now, thankfully, our training conforms to all that, and we were able to figure things out pretty yeah. quickly. But we're sitting there, and we got a junior officer leading us at the time, Mark. Great guy. Did nothing but love for, for Mark. And um, so he's up on the like the back deck of the, of the mic boat trying to like he's on the radio trying to like figure out what to do see if we can call in another asset. And we're sitting down in the well of this thing. And we know what's coming. Okay, yeah. we know we've done this, right? We're going to go up the gang, the gangplank is still on the pier. We're going to go walk right up that thing. We're going to go on board this ship. And there's and apparently there's like maybe more than a dozen guys on there turned out there were 36. They got they got a got they got a force of 36 dudes on that thing that are with that major. And we got to go room to room and find them. Now, if you've ever done what's called CQC or CQB, can we call it CQB? They're close quarters battle. Now they call it close quarters combat. This is going room to room. This is the most challenging thing you will ever do with a, with a weapon in your hand. Because all you, it's like a video game. All you're doing is walking into a place with hiding places in it and people can pop out at you. Okay. And you're going to try and stay alive and get done what you want to get done. Now take that and put it on board a ship any kind of ship, but particularly like one of these big, you know, commercial type ships, not, not some sort of thing that's meant for passengers. And it's like walking through a Thomas's English muffin. I mean, all you've got is nooks and crannies and pipes and places to hide. And there's just, there's a thousand of them. I mean, it is, it is, a, it is a nightmarish thing. And we've done them. So we, we go to James river, which is where they have a mothball fleet. And we practice on these things. And it's just like, it, it's a, it's a complete cluster. And, and, you know, we're about to do this for real. And this is with people with guns who, I mean, they're shooting, go, you can hear, you know, gunfire going on in various places. Okay, this is live. And, and we're all looking at it going, oh man, this doesn't look good. Well, there's a guy, again, no last names, but Todd, Todd is a uh, pastor in Virginia now. He's probably the uh, most, just one of the nicest, most wonderful human beings I've ever met in my life. Um, Todd is in my platoon. And we had on our weapons, M203 grenade launchers. Um, this is a, it's like a big pipe that we have AR-15, like, like an M16, okay? Yeah. Kind of like a little smaller version of M16. And the M203 hangs below the barrel and it shoots around a high explosive round about the size of a racquetball, okay? Just to give you an idea. And you, people who've seen pictures of these, they probably have seen them, but for those who haven't, so it's a grenade launcher and it's about the size of your fist when it shoots out there. We had never, none of us, and from the SEAL Team 2 of us, had ever fired one before. We were all new guys, okay? This is all of our first platoon. You know, we'd, we'd probably gotten out of uh, advanced training within nine months and we're all sitting there and, you know, it, there just aren't a lot of ranges where you can fire that thing. You know, it's like you're firing a, a high explosive round, you know, several hundred yards. And uh, so Todd, though, he goes to Wally, which is one of the SEAL Team 4 guys, more experienced. He goes, hey, how much noise does an M203 make when you fire it? And and we I mean, kind of knew because you've seen it in the movies, but it's like. <laughs> 
it's about as loud as clapping your hands together really loud. Okay. Just the actual firing of it, you know, shooting the round out is just a loud pop. That's, it's not like gunfire. Right. And Todd goes, okay. He goes, how much noise is it going to make up there though? And, and while he goes, it'll be a big explosion. And then Todd goes, how much noise is it going to make on the inside of that thing? Because it's not going to pen it. This is hardened steel on the outside of the container ship. Uh, uh, M203 rounds not going to do anything to it, right? Mm-hmm. But Todd was smart enough to think, yeah, but inside, it's going to be loud. And he goes, <laughs> oh, yeah. And we're all sitting down there going, that'll be deafening in there. He goes, man, that'll scare the hell out of me. And he goes, and, and we just... Todd said, loading up a round. And then all of us are looking at him going, okay. So we all loaded up some rounds. And while we're still trying to figure out how we're going to do this and kind of breaking the rules here because our officer didn't explicitly tell us to, um, we just fired about half a dozen M2, uh, HE rounds at the outside of this container ship. So it just goes pop, 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 pop. Wait about a second. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And our, our officer turns around. He's panicked. He doesn't know what's going on. But within about a minute of us doing that a big white sheet comes out the window because yeah and and when we had a couple spanish speakers all 36 guys filed off of that thing with their hands in the air they didn't know what they were dealing they thought they might have been dealing with a frigate they thought maybe there was a navy frigate there Mm -hmm. and they just couldn't see it because they're looking at these tiny little windows they're scared to look out the windows afraid they might get shot it's not rational but people don't act rational in combat situations and they thought there was a large naval vessel out in the harbor that was getting ready to blow the container ship up. And no, it was a, a bunch of knuckleheads <laughs> like, who were like a hundred feet below them shooting these two. But what it did, it just made a massive noise, scared the hell out of them. They all walked off. We took 36 prisoners. We took like, I don't know, 250 weapons off of those guys, get all kinds of intel, got the major that we were there to do. But the, the point is we accomplished a job which could have gotten incredibly messy and definitely would have been bloody. No yeah. question in my mind about that. Yeah. None of them had a scratch on them. None of us had a scratch on us. And we wrapped the whole thing up inside of an hour. And to me, that was one of those times where, okay, it was a silly idea. And it was like, but it probably might, it's not going to hurt. Yeah. And we did it. And, and it ended up being, it's a, we ended up getting decorated for that. And then we did a whole bunch of other stuff that nobody, you know, ever, you know, this, this is the one that happened to make the, the internal Navy press. But, um, but no, that to me was always an example of here we are, these, you know, America's finest warriors and these, you know, elite paramilitary commandos or whatever right. you want to call us. And, and this was a solution we came up with, which was <laughs> goofy. It was just goofy, but it was what was going to work. Right. The thing I tell guys about getting ready, if they're going to go into combat, is no matter what you've trained for, and our training is, is really varied. We do a lot of different kinds of things is nothing that you're going to face in combat is going to be exactly like anything that you've ever trained for. For sure. Situations going to unfold in front of you is going to be very unique. This is us on a pier, you know, like next to a container ship trying to get guys off of it. And and it's like, there's no, there's no lesson plan for this. There's no field manual that's got this one in it. And yet we had to figure it out on the fly. I had to get a bunch of guys to work together. And there's a lot that went on and actually getting those guys off of there. Um, and escorted safely into the mic boat where they're all packed in. Um, yep. But the, the thing is, it was like, it was an out of the box thought that came from a guy who had been a SEAL for nine months and just fought it up on the spot. Yep. And to me, that was what it ended up being, you know, we'll never know what the alternative to that was, 
Right. But frankly, I might not be standing, I might not be sitting here talking to you. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I know, and this is the thing that personally, and I don't know if this conforms to the lessons that necessarily you want to teach here, but what, what, why that story, I love telling it and why it's important to me is that it stands to reason right now, I'm 56 years old. Most of the guys coming off of that ship are younger than me. I was 23 at the time. And most of the guys, are, they were younger than me. Right now in Panama, there's probably 50 plus grandfathers and fathers and guys with jobs and mm -hmm. guys with families and yep. they're living their life. And that is in direct result from what my friend talked yep. and what yep. we did. And that is a good feeling yep. because there are a lot yeah. of bad feelings and that's a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a, you know, phenomenal story. Uh, adapt and overcome, I guess, you know, that the, the lesson here for the leaders during a crisis, right? Cause uh, you know, like you mentioned fast paced event, you know um, we have to make decisions and, and sometimes it's not uh, within the four walls of the box that we've trained to. Um, so we have to think outside of that. And uh, you know, we, you know, you clearly adapted and, and overcame and uh, you know, and, and now you, you know, you live to tell the story, which is uh, phenomenal. Well, and every major, enterprise corporation in America and worldwide, they've got a room with a bunch of binders in it because they have thought through some of this stuff and they've gone, what if this is their, like, okay, if we suddenly this happens, get down that binder and it tells us what to do, right? We know they got, or they're probably not even binders anymore. They're probably something online. Yep. Although if they lose their computers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the answer isn't always in the binder. A lot of good planning is in there. A lot of like the, the planning that went into it yep. and knowing what they say is very important, but don't let, doctrine handcuff you yep. in a dynamic situation take a step back look at the look at what's unique about the situation and listen to your people because they don't have the burden of having to see the whole picture right and young minds are agile minds too the one thing i have learned to respect is um, something my dad told me my father is a genius in his own right but he always says listen you know the, the great geniuses in, in in history they all have done have done their best work by the age of 30 mm -hmm. uh, because the mind is like a muscle and yep. it's like, and the most agile minds you've got are the young ones. And they're going to look at it differently than you. And they might not be wrong. They might not be right. They might not be wrong, but they deserve to be listened to. Yep. Excellent. Well, that was a great way to end uh, the episode today. And uh, what an episode. Thanks, Dave, for your time. Uh, any final comments for our listeners? And if they want to contact you, can they get a hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn, where else can they uh, contact you? Uh, Dave Rogers, LinkedIn. Um, and I'm on, I'm one of your connections, Rob. So if they can find you, they can find me. Um, I'm on the, you know, the, the, the get off my lawn, old man, social media. So I'm on Facebook, uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much what that's become now. Yeah. Um, I'm on there as well. Uh, and my, and I'll go ahead and put out my personal email if anybody cares to get in touch, uh, which is you, and, and if you're out there and you're listening, it it's, I'm, I apologize in advance, yeah. uh, it is Dave R, which is Dave and R the first initial life, my last name Rogers. Um, and then the first six prime numbers. Uh, so I'm a son of a mathematician. So what can I tell you? Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's Dave R one two three five seven eleven at yahoo.com. And I'd be happy to hear from anybody if they've got anything they'd like to share or talk about. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll, we'll add um, your uh, link in for LinkedIn if people want to connect with you into the show notes so they can get a hold of you. Again, Perfect. thanks for your time uh, today. We really appreciate it, Dave. Rob, it's great to hear from you again, buddy. And uh, this is always a good time. I appreciate the chance.
great thanks well that's all uh what a great episode uh, 91 uh, if you enjoyed this uh we'd love to hear from you you can comment in the comment section underneath uh, the podcast or share it wherever you're listening to it on the you know hundreds of different outlets now uh, where you can listen to podcasts so uh we'd appreciate uh, any feedback you have uh, any questions you have with regards to uh, today's uh, podcast uh, again thanks for your time and be safe out there everyone take care <laughs>